very, uh, very pleased to welcome you to the first of our uh, series and breakfast meetings in the suburbs. And uh, hopefully you've enjoyed a shorter commute to this meeting than some of you have to, to fare to go downtown and join us at Maggiano's on the second Thursday every month. The objective here is to uh, introduce topics in the suburbs that are appropriate to the suburbs and those of you that are involved in issues related to transportation and, and impacted by the rising fuel costs, I think we'll find this session to be terrific. I'll introduce um, our program committee here shortly and uh, to introduce the speakers, but my role here is simple and that's just to invite you to come and join us on other events coming up. And I wanna just point out next week, for those of you who are interested and are managing global operations, we have a session on the 21st, that's next Thursday. It's a half day learning event that we'll be conducting at AT&T's training facilities downtown to thank Rich Wagner and uh, the folks at AT&T for offering their facilities to us. That half-day event will be focused on a topic called, you're on the same planet, but are we on the same page? That kind of talks to the issue of how do you manage global operations uh, with language and cultural is issues and so forth. So ought to be a very interesting opportunity. Then on September 11th, we'll have our regular scheduled uh, lunch session. This is one of our highest attended events. It is Tales from the Trenches. Um, and it's always a, a well-attended one where we have folks from the corporate real estate environment talking to, them about, talking to us about the issues that they have in their day-to-day -day job and uh, how they've fared this year. Then on the 22nd, the very next day, we'll be hosting a um, work session at our community reinvestment project. And the chapter has an ongoing effort, different projects, but an ongoing effort in the community reinvestment committee and this one is a environmentally sensitive garden that we're doing in conjunction with the um, Green Building Council. And Morella Gabrowska is our chair for that event. And so I believe AT&T and their team is coming out for a uh, team building work session. And all of you are invited to come out as well. There's information on the website as to how you can get there in Garfield Park. These are pictures of some of us, we had about 40 folks out about two weeks ago uh, to do a work session, and we're working on this uh, sustainable garden. It's uh, just a lot of fun to do something a little different. Um, I think that's it, except that those of you who are golfers ought to be marking your calendars for September 17th, because coming up on September 17th is the Cornet Classic. It'll be at Cantini in Wheaton, and it's our third annual. These have been sold out events, and I encourage you to be there. Uh, if you don't have a slot already, uh, I think it will sell out quickly. And if it does sell out, make sure you talk to one of our sponsors because they have open slots uh, that they've already reserved. I think that's it. Dan, do you want to come up and uh, introduce our speakers? Thanks, Rick. Uh, my name is Dan Albrick, and uh, I'm on the Programs Committee Chair uh, with uh, Jeanette Outlaw. So we uh, have the task of finding some excellent speakers, so that's what we've done. But before we get into these, uh, today's speakers, um, just to reiterate a couple of upcoming uh, programs. On Thursday, September 11th, as Rick Page had mentioned, we do have this Tales from the Trenches. It will be back downtown at Maggiano's. Uh, and that is the lessons learned from corporate real estate executives, kind of what to do, uh, what not to do. And then uh, I believe there is a change. It's Thursday, October 2nd, I believe, for the following lunch, um, which will be the first Thursday of the month, not the second. And that will be uh, solutions delivery and the transformation of the service provider industry. 
and then uh, the, then we'll back on the, be back on the regular schedule for Thursday, November night or November thirteenth for the 2008 year in review. So that's always a, a, a very highly touted event uh, and topic to go to as well. So, but that really takes us to the uh, topic of today. We had so much information uh, as we were pulling this topic together about fuel and its impact on corporate real estate that we actually have to do this in a two-part series. So we are gonna be back here again in early December for the second part of this kind of post-election to see what's happening with fuel and how the impacts uh, will affect uh, the corporate real estate at that point in time. So. But uh, I'm going to start us off uh, by just introducing our moderator, and then he can go from there. A friend of mine, Ruben Ruban. Ruben specializes in uh, financing and investment sales. For the last three years, he was an associate uh, in the National Office and Industrial Property Group for Marcus and Millichap. He is now in the process of forming a new development group and is an active member of NIOP and CCIM. His shoe size is 11, by the way. So, <laughs> You know I was going to throw that in there. <laughs> All right, well, actually, I think that goes over there. Is this working? Testing, testing. Yep. No, it works? Well, I, yeah, you can just put it there. Yeah. Oh, it's just because that's it. Ruben's okay. got that, so. I, I, we got that covered. <laughs> Are you going to cover it? All right, just, yeah, just a reminder, one of the reasons we have to wear these mics and so forth is this is being recorded. So anything you say will be, no, I'm sorry. Uh, it will be held, uh, it will be uh, podcast, so uh, uh, if you guys have any comments or questions, what we ask is uh, be a little patient, we need you to either come up here towards the front probably and uh, maybe I'll grab one of these microphones and uh, that way you can actually speak into it so when some people hear it over the podcast, they'll actually hear the question. So um, just briefly, as we get started today, just uh, want to touch on the topic for today and well, first of all, thank you. Dan and uh, Janet for uh, the invitation to be here and with this uh, nice audience. I know that, that we're all different areas of the real estate and in this two-part series, this is going to be kind of a more of general, uh, global, uh, very industrial and rail-centric uh, discussion today. And uh, there's, you know, obviously there's uh, a concern about the fuel costs and how it's had an impact on our economy. And just to kind of recap, I know that uh, everybody's heard a lot about the economy, but just recapping over the last couple of years, you know, back in 01 or so, we had our good friend, Alan Greenspan, trying to pump some life into the economy that uh, things were a little bit uh, a little bit dead, and you know, people were a little bit, so he pulled out the, the paddles and, and got some shock and got some things going, and obviously got going really well, but the lender requirements got to the point that, you know, if you could just fog up a mirror, you were getting you were getting any kind of loan you were looking for. <laughs> well, things were going really well that people just, you know, their expectation of consumer ex uh, expenditures was rising. People were going to their ATM at their home and just pulling out cash and just blowing it with it. And uh, then we come to today's reality. We're out of cash from the ATM at home. Okay. Well, I do some talks. I know it's kind of early. I'm sure some people had coffee because coffee ran out of there. I'm a very much interactive person here. So... Don't be afraid to say a few things. I actually lived in Orlando for a while where Disney's there. And everybody knows that Disney's like the number one person or area when you do uh, interactive and everybody's like the yay and the ahs and so forth. I know this is not an awe, but we can be a little live here. That's okay. There we go. Oh, yeah, let's plug into the mirror. The, um, the global economy, we'll, we'll leave all the, the economists to sit there and, and argue about 
recession, not recession, going on. But it really obviously affects everything in, in our livelihood and what we do here. And uh, well, if you think about everything as, as small as a pen or the chair that uh, you may deliver to a customer or you may purchase at the store, or the different goods and services that you provide, it, it's all tied in globally. The products that we use on a daily basis, they, they may be made at different parts of the world and find their ways uh, to our distribution centers, to our businesses, to retail areas uh, near us in different ways. Um, optimizing and utilizing every aspect of that or how to, to move it, it is, is, it's been an incredible um, path that's been, you know, been undertaken over the last several years. Um, we can see the barges now are, are, are built to the point of just leaving inches as they pass through the Panama Canal and the Suez Canal and the different um, ways of getting to our ports where they hop on our rail system. And uh, this is actually a, a picture of, uh, of the rail system uh, for uh, BNSF down in um, uh, uh, Alliance, Texas. Yeah. And this is yeah. one of the things that I'm sure we'll be touching base on today. Yeah. And so basically there's a channel of different railroads and trucking combination that has been evolved and it, at, the, at the end of the day really affects what we do in our business. And so uh, hopefully today in our panel everybody will be able to take uh, at least one or two nuggets of information that will uh, illuminate our uh, vision and what we're doing with our business and how really the, the, the transportation and distribution uh, has an effect on what we do. Um, let me briefly introduce our three distinguished gentlemen to my left. Uh, I will start off uh, with, um, well, I have him on the list here, so I think Jim's actually on the far left over there. Jim uh, Giblin, he's with uh, Transystems. Uh, Jim is, he has a career that has been in the rail and trucking industry, formerly with the Santa Fe Railways, and uh, serves on the Citizen Advisory Committee for CMAP, Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. So Jim brings an extensive background in the rail and trucking industry. Uh, we also have, I believe, uh, in the center, um, Eric Pitcher. Uh, Eric's mm -hmm. the regional manager and economic development with BNSF Railway Company. Eric Pitcher manages Economic Development for BNSF Railway Company in the Midwest states of Illinois, Wisconsin, Kentucky, and Indiana. With the region, within the region, Eric is responsible for attracting attraction of large distribution and industrial facilities to sites served by or near the BNSF Railway Network, managing the approval process for installing rail service uh, to new and expanding customers, identifying new locations for rail serve, industrial park, and developing the BNSF network of transloaded providers. And here to my left, uh, on the other half of that equation, if you will, we have Chris McGrath with uh, First Industrial Realty Trust. Chris is Vice President of Development with more than 25 years of experience in the real estate industry, specifically coordinating industrial park development Chris McGrath leads First Industrial's development activities across the Chicago, Milwaukee, and Northwest Indiana markets. As Vice President of the Development Chicago Region, Mr. McGrath's responsibilities include land acquisition, speculative 
positioning, built to suit development and redevelopment. Although I don't know about the speculative part, how that's coming along. Not too bad. Not too bad. Okay. Slow down a little bit. <laughs> During his tenure at First Industrial, Mr. McGrath has been involved in numerous built to suit speculative de development projects, totaling more than 8 million square feet for major corporate uh, customers, including Emerson Electric, uh, Penske, and General Motors. Why don't we give a nice warm applause? It's really, it's, it's more than just a national standpoint. First Industrial in the last uh, couple years has actually grown from just a domestic North American REIT to an actually global, global REIT. Um, aside from our 30 locations here in the United States, we have three locations in Canada, we have uh, four locations in Europe, and we have uh, two new locations in Mexico uh, by the end of the year. So what, what, what we're really doing as a company is following corporate America. We're following our corporate customers around the globe because really supply chains are a global issue as it relates to fuel and ultimately at the end of the day it's cost. It's cost per widget for everything that we buy when we go to the store. When you want to buy something that's a dollar cheaper here than here, we vote with our dollars every day as to what those supply chains should be and what they should look like as the customers try to economize. Um, there are no radical changes. I think what it is, everything is somewhat evolutionary in terms of, of the movement of goods. Uh, what we've seen is, you know, manufacturing is really goes to, it becomes a balance of weight, size, and value. Okay? The smaller it is and the higher value it is, the easier it is to make it somewhere else where labor's cheaper. Uh, the bigger it is, the more weight it has, and the lesser of value, the transportation costs overwhelm the manufacturing costs, so it needs to be produced relatively closer. Uh, and just got to get closer. <laughs> it needs to be produced relatively closer to make that balance of, of pricing that as a consumer, we're looking to purchase those goods. Um, fuel uh, affects everything in the supply chain. Um, it affects not only you know, Eric will talk about the railroads, it affects the trucking industry, it affects the, the steamship lines. Um, there's a, an interesting slide, and I apologize, I forgot to bring the slide this morning. I was traveling yesterday, but um, it was actually Grubbin Ellis uh, did a, a slide about how far can you go on $500 worth of diesel fuel. And there's a map of the United States. In 1999, if you started LA Long Beach, $500 worth of diesel fuel could take you to New York City, okay, in 1999. In 2001, it would only get you to Chicago. In 2003, it would only get you to Kansas City. In 2007, it would only get you to Denver. And today, $500 of diesel fuel will only get you to Salt Lake City from LA Long Beach. That's the issue, okay? It affects everything from delivery of parts, delivery of finished goods, if, you know, anything that's, anything that's related to, to petrodollars is affected by the cost of fuel. So this is, as you know, what, what we all look at is 
you know, and for, you know, corporate, you know, folks out, out there is how does this affect your thinking? How does this affect the distribution aspects of your products? Um, if your company's supply chain had a three warehouse solution to cover the United States, at some point, the cost of that trucking and or rail service, you may have to go to a five warehouse distribution network because the cost of the rent, another important uh, piece, cost of rent versus the gross cost of your product. If you analyze the breakdown of that fuel, transportation costs, the overall transportation costs, comprise about 48 to 49% of the cost of a good. Rent constitutes four to 5% of the cost of a good. So at some point, it's cheaper to pay more rent, have a broader distribution network because you're gonna save it on the backside in your transportation costs, which have a greater effect on the overall price of your ultimate good you know, at the, at the store or at the wholesale level. So that's kind of from a macro perspective, that's why First Industrial is expanded our reach across the world because it really is about our corporate customers. I mean, we, you know, like for example, Penske, you know, we've done deals with Penske globally to help affect how goods and things transfer across the, across the world. Uh, fuel, we don't have any steamship line folks up here, but to give you an example of the cost, bunker fuel is what uh, the, the freighters use. It's um, a grade below even diesel fuel, it's called bunker. Uh, bunker fuel has doubled in the last two years. You know, so you know, it, it, the, the cost of fuel affects every, you know, every aspect of the supply chain. Um, and ultimately, how, you know, the, the challenge for managers of all companies across the United States is how do you deal with it? How do you morph your supply chain? How do you morph your product just, you know, um, uh, profiles? How do you accommodate to, to, to keep the ultimate consumer happy, which is what we're all here for in terms of the sale of your product? Well, uh, you touched on the, the fuel and, you know, how $500 has really taken us a little bit uh, less mileage these days. Mm -hmm. um, Eric, I don't know if you could uh, tell us a little bit. It seems like uh, the trend has been into more of the rail uh, routes of, of transportation. Is this more of some of recent type of, uh, of change, or is this something that's kind of happening over the last several years? Well, I think the uh, the development of rail activity, and I have to apologize here. I'm also looking at a slide that as as we're talking. Uh, but, but between basically 2000 and 2007, uh, in the container business, uh, for international containers, which are again separate from domestic containers, we've had a growth of a compounded average growth rate of eight percent. Between 2008 and 2013, we think that growth rate is going to decrease down to 7.6%, but it's on a higher basis. I guess the, the short answer is there's been an increased interest in rail traffic, especially in the last eight years, but it really started to peak in the 19, it started to grow in the 1990s. And we expect it's going to continue to grow dramatically in the future, not only in the area of intermodal or container traffic, both international and domestic, but it's going to also increase activity in the boxcar area, which if you asked railroad people a few years ago what was the future of boxcars, they would probably say not very good. 
But what's happened is that the fuel costs have driven people more and more towards uh, using rail as an operation. Now, there's, there's a couple of interesting dynamics here, if I can take that just a step further and uh, take it off on a comment that Chris has. If you have, uh, in the past several years, the tendency was to larger and larger centralized distribution centers. You know, 3.4 million square feet that Walmart built down at Logistics Park Chicago or at Centerpoint Intermodal Center, that type of thing. If the trend in the future is to having smaller, more distributed distribution centers over a larger number of areas, because you don't want to have to be able to, you don't have to want to have to truck your product too far, that also is going to run into a trend that's been occurring in the rail industry for some time to have longer and bigger trains. You probably saw the, the monster trains going through Barrington headline in the Tribune the other day. Um, those monster trains, I think you read down through the article, 10,000 foot trains are the standard for what we run from Los Angeles to Joliet. Uh, that's basically what we, uh, I think last year we ran about two a week. Um, 7,500 foot trains is the standard between Seattle and Chicago. But LA and Chicago is 10,000 feet for, for containers. Um, they're not going to get any shorter. Um, so what happens is that the railroads, since we very much make our money based upon having operating efficiencies, you know, much like a utility company or, or a large manufacturer, we have to be able to drive down that per unit cost any way we can. And one way to do that is by having longer trains, by putting more freight on the, on the rails. Uh, we need bigger facilities in order to land those trains. So whereas we're trying to move towards fewer and fewer rail yards, but very big ones, for example, uh, BNSF has 14 major intermodal yards in the United States. Uh, 20 years ago, we probably had maybe 150. So as we consolidate our intermodal operations into fewer and fewer ones, it may run counter a little bit to the concept of having more distribution facilities, smaller ones in more places. That also brings up an opportunity, though. The railroads, like the BNSF and the other Class One railroads, are uh, much like the transmission system for the electric utility industry. We're, we're high-volume business operations. The short-line railroads and transload operations are much like the retail distri the distribution system for the utility industry. They're the ones who can break down these large trains that we're shipping into smaller units and handle them. There's an industrial park in Montgomery, Illinois that TCB development is, is putting together. Uh, we just outsourced the line serving that industrial park to uh, Burlington, Junction, Burlington Junction Railway. They're a cap, what we call a captive switching carrier. They will put together, they'll deliver cars to buildings, they will pick up empties, they will make up a train. We simply come up, hook onto it and haul it away or we bring in a new train for the product. That's the kind of development you're gonna be seeing a lot more in the future. And I think that's the kind of thing that, that uh, you know, First Industrial's been looking at in, in, a, in a number of areas as well, too. Well, really, uh, just briefly, kind of juxtaposing rail versus trucking, because we've you know, had trucking for, for a long time. Uh, Eric and, and Jim, feel free to chime in as well. Uh, actually, this morning I spoke with uh, Rod Early from Wabash National the largest manufacturer of uh, trailers, truck trailers. And just to ask a couple questions of, 
you know, what kind of trends have they seen? And uh, they, you know, just uh, uh, mirroring exactly what uh, Eric just said, you know, in 93 they started seeing, you know, a big change from just a regular trailer to, to the, the rail trailers and you know, the double stacks and so forth. And obviously in the last several years, uh, it's, it's kind of grown and grown, but specifically in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months has been a really big push. Uh, there is a threshold that rail versus trucking kind of makes sense to go trucking, you know, depending on mileage and so forth. Um, Eric and, uh, and, uh, and Jim, if you could maybe talk a little bit about, you know, the, the what where is the cost point or the mileage point of trucking? So if a company is more of a regional um, type of uh, company that they deliver uh, stuff locally, you know, more <laughs> versus, you know, longer distance. Um, the conventional wisdom has always been that the, that the, the break-even point is about 1,000 miles. If, it, if it's more than 1,000 miles and you have acceptable rail service, then you'd be better off putting it on the rail. Um, on the BNSF, previously the Santa Fe, um, our length of haul tended to be rather long because we had our main line, our primary main line was between Chicago and California. And obviously, there's not a lot of intermediate markets between Chicago and California, so you had about a 2,000-mile line haul. The um, census of transportation says that the average today for the whole entire industry is about 1,500 miles for an intermodal line haul. Um, in the east, it's shorter because the distances are shorter. You've got about 900 miles between Chicago and New York, and that's a big intermodal lane with multiple departures on both CSX and Norfolk Southern. So you, you're, you're, the, the rule of thumb is generally you need about eight or 900 uh, rail miles to make it work. Can you, uh, just not to cite the track, but you guys are using the word intermodal. And uh, many of us probably are familiar, but there might be a few people that may not be exactly familiar with intermodal. Jim, could you give a definition? Um, it is what it is, more than one mode. Um, there's actually several types of intermodal. There, there is conventional intermodal where you take a a truck trailer or a, a steamship container and put it on the rail for the line haul and then the trucker does the local delivery. There's also something that uh, Eric alluded to earlier called transloading, um, where you would put something in a rail car, a traditional rail car like a covered hopper or a box car for the line haul and then uh, at destination the rail car would go into some type of a transloading facility where the product would be transferred from the rail car into a truck for local delivery. Well, the, excuse me, the, uh, the, the intermodal or the container uh, customers obviously are the ones that are the uh, uh, benefit probably the most uh, in the past, oh, say 10, 15 years. Though there is a development in the industrial products side of the business, what we call industrial products or boxcar, flat car, center beam, uh, lumber type business, where that's increasing dramatically. But to give you an idea of scale, um, on a train, you'll have our, our average number of containers on a train is 243. Um, now you compare that to having requiring 243 sets of drivers and tractor trailers driving cross country, it's very, very difficult for uh, the trucking industry to compete with the rail industry on the long haul business. The, num the numbers just aren't there. But I think the, the, the boxcar business is, is starting to uh, benefit quite a bit. 
In fact, some of the growth that we've seen in the Chicago market is primarily in beverages and food products. Um, a couple of years ago, Fresh Logistics located out at Hodgkins. They're bringing in uh, the bolthouse juices that you buy in the grocery store and grapes and carrots and a few other things from Bakersfield. They put together 10 cars a day in Bakersfield and sent it to Chicago. Um, Coors, uh, through Arnold Logistics, ships uh, several carloads a day of beer from Golden, Colorado to, uh, to Hodgkins as well, too. And that's another kind of company that benefits by it a great deal. Uh, wine companies have done that for a long time. But especially for urban areas, we think that's a potential growth area because food is a high-value product. Uh, the economics can work to ship it by rail. The thing that you have to work out is how do you make sure that you get the rail cars from one place to another within a, a very short time frame so you don't have any, uh, any spoilage. Chris, could you um, give us uh, an idea how the uh, real estate companies like, like First Industrial work with the rail companies uh, to provide uh, a solution for, for the customer? You know, maybe walk us through. Sure. Um, we, we work with all the Class 1 railroads on the United States. I do a lot of work with, uh, with Eric as well. And what Eric was alluding to about Chicago what we've looked at uh, is the concept of consumption zones. And the definition of a consumption zone is a 250 mile circle centered on a city. And what you do is you look at how much population is captured by that circle of 250 miles. And if you kind of distill down uh, the movement of goods and services across the United States, it's really driven by consumption zones. It's driven by consumers. Who uses the products? So what we've done is we've categorized these <coughs> consumption zones. It's just as an example, the number one consumption zone in the United States, population, captured population, 80.2 million people, is centered on Newport News, Virginia. And you can kind of, if you picture in your mind the United States, it makes a lot of sense. You get New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Chicago actually is number four. Number two, Number two consumption zone in the United States is centered Fort Wayne, Indiana. And you're like, huh? But if you stop and think about it, 250 miles captures Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Indianapolis. You know, so, you know, so you know, if you start looking at all these consumption zones, that's where the product wants to get to. Chicago by itself is the largest inland port in the United States. So in terms of getting things from the coasts into the Midwest, Chicago is very, very important. So, Working with the railroads, working with the trucking companies, it's how can you efficiently move the goods from the ports or from the manufacturing areas on the east and west coasts in the Midwest back and forth. And what we've seen here, and what both Jim and Eric were talking about, is the fact that that distance is coming down. That, that it makes sense for trucking versus rail. A lot of things that we see now is that actually one of the biggest customers of the railroads are the trucking companies. Um, because it's not only just the containers that you, know, like you see the pictures of the containers on the ships, but it's what they call TOFC, trailer on flat car, where they actually take the trailer and put the trailer on a flat car and send it across the country. Uh, again, the, 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 the minimal amount of times you can touch something, the fewer the numbers, the uh, times that uh, it has to be handled, lowers the operational cost. So they can load a trailer in 
pick any city, you know, the East Coast, West Coast, Denver, Seattle, you know, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, put it on a rail car, send it across uh, the country. And what it does, it's not only the distance mileage on the rail, but it's a congestion and time issue on the highways, particularly in the eastern half of the United States. That, that distance is much shorter because if you look at the I-95 corridor up the East Coast, I-81 corridor up through the New York area, the traffic is so bad, uh, the eastern class one railroads can actually make sense of putting trailers on flat cars and hauling 300, 400 miles. Because the time, again, driving back to the, con to the customer, to the beneficial cargo owner, how fast can I get my product to its ultimate destination? It'd be time dollar value to me, it's better to put it on the train, send it 350 miles, rather than have the truck stuck in congested traffic. Um, Target did a study for their own benefit of what the cost was to them on a per day basis for their global supply chain and really affected um, how much they're spending for the lost opportunity cost while things are in transit, it's not at their store and it's not being bought. So if they can shorten their supply chain by one day from a product being manufactured in China till it goes on the shelf at the store in Wheaton, okay, if they can shorten that supply chain one day, it's worth $10 million to, want, to uh, target. That's the value in the transportation costs and the lost opportunity cost for sales. So again, what we do with the railroads and with corporate customers is try to identify how do we facilitate the movement of the products? You know, kind of to spin off the, the Olympic stuff that's going on here now. Our global supply chain with the steamship lines, the railroads, the trucking companies, is kind of like the four by 100 relay race, okay? We've got great companies that do great things in moving products from A to B to C to D across the country. The problem that we have, United States, we keep dropping the baton on the handoffs because all of our actual physical facilities, whether they be ports, intermodals, you know, we have not kept up to speed, you know, just like bridges and other things that we have from an infrastructure standpoint, we have not kept up with the efficiencies of our handoffs. And that's one of the things from a first industrial standpoint that we're looking at, you know, within our own supply chain solutions group is how do we work the railroads? How do we build better intermodals? How do we build what Eric was referring to, intermediate intermodals that are just nothing more than on-ramp, off-ramp feeders for the mega facilities that the railroads are doing. How do we work with the short-line railroads to facilitate these short-distance pickups you know, between different cities? Work with the trucking companies to provide better designed buildings, you know, across that, buildings that are only now 200 feet deep, dock-to-dock -dock on two sides, you know, because they can move the goods faster from one mode, when we're talking about the transload, if they're moving from an international container to a domestic container or a domestic trailer, they don't want to go across a building that's 400 feet wide, they want to go across a building that's 100 or 200 feet wide. So it's really tailoring the different products, the physical products, to support the supply chain. And I think uh, a good example of that in Beckley is the FedEx that they just built down in Texas. And that's like one of the longest, is over a mile or something. Right. We actually, we actually built a building for Penske we called the Hockey Stick. And that's it's what it looked like. It's in Louisville. Uh, it was designed to transload truck parts for Ford. 
And the handle of the hockey stick is 1,000 feet long and 180 feet wide. Okay, and then the blade of the hockey stick was 200 feet wide, but it had dual rail coming inside the building to unload boxcars. It was all about speed of loading and unloading to get parts off of trucks, off the rail, back into a, a um, and this was all computerized to the Ford assembly plant, so that they would break down these trucks, they would actually load the pieces and the parts based on the needs of the assembly line and deliver it it was about three miles to the Ford plant, so it all arrived in sequence, already lined up to literally just go right into the truck as it was being made. This is, this is the kind of you know, connectivity that we're really looking at in terms to help industry be more efficient. Wow. Uh, really quick, if anybody has questions, again, like I said at the beginning, it's interactive. Good question. Um, a lot, I'll say a lot of the steel that's being done in the United States right now is um, mini mills, right. which is all basically recycled steel, um, scrap metal. Again, as we were talking earlier, that's really a, a railroad function in the sense, you know, heavy weight, large quantity, you know, domestic movement. I mean, that, 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 you know, and that plays into the strength of what the railroads are doing. Uh, same thing, a lot of that scrap gets exported um, as well. But it's the, same, it's the same thing. It gets transloaded into a container, which then gets put on the railroad, which then gets sent to a port to be shipped overseas. So, um, you, know, you know, I know that um, we're seeing a lot of traditional manufacturing, like appliances and, and things like that that are bulk, big, you know, um, going back to rail solutions, you know, in the, in, back in the 70s, they were on rail. 80s, 90s, they got away and they're, they're doing, you know, trucking. Now, flip-flopping back to rail solution because, again, you know, lowest cost per widget, it, you know, again, high volume, a lot of air there. Um, it's easier to put it on a boxcar, as Eric was talking about, and uh, put it on the rail to a DC. This doesn't impact uh, intermodal specifically, but there is a project that we're working on in uh, northern Minnesota, uh, up in the Iron Range in uh, Nashwalk, um, where uh, an Indian-owned company uh, who recently purchased Algoma Steel in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, is also developing a new uh, taconite, iron ore mine. Uh, there's an iron ore deposit that has some specific characteristics to it. They're going to produce taconite to begin with, and then take the next step and produce direct reduced iron, synthetic scrap, if you will and actually be shipping that to uh, either mills in the south end of the Great Lakes or in, in uh, you know, other parts of the Great Lakes or out to uh, 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 Sault Ste. Marie. So it's sort of ironic. You have a situation where you now have basic natural resource production coming back in some cases to the United States, whereas for decades it was leaving. But the capital that's paying for it is primarily overseas capital. That project, I think, is about a $1.7 billion project by the time it'll, it'll get done. Yes, sir. Do you see, I mean, we know that with the dollar, there's more exporting today than ever. But given the fact that it costs a lot of money to ship something from China to the United States, and I'm assuming that goes on for some time, do you think that manufacturing returning back to the United States might be here in a much more significant way and for a longer term? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is that, that 
we're not ready yet to bring manufacturing back from offshore, but there's a lot of companies today that are looking, that, that historically would have looked at moving offshore are saying, well, let's stay in the U.S. or let's stay in North America. Let's, let's do Mexico instead of China. Um, if I can get ahead of the program here, there was an interesting article in uh, the August 3rd uh, New York Times, and it, it quotes a study um, that was published by the Canadian investment bank CIBC World Markets in May of this year, calculates that the recent surge in shipping costs is on average the equivalent of a 9% tariff on trade. The cost of moving goods, not the cost of tariffs, is the largest barrier to global trade today, the report concluded, and as a result has effectively offset all the trade liberal liberalization efforts of the last three decades. And what that means is in the last year, we've just seen 30 years worth of free, free trade go down the tubes. So um, I think fuel is going to be a catalyst, a very strong catalyst for a lot of other decisions. I think people were concerned about the cost of labor in China, about quality control issues. Um, and I think fuel is, is definitely going to be the tipping point. I think, say, I think I'll say uh, kind of the same lines. We see um, some repatri you know, the future of some repatriation of manufacturing back to North America. Um, may or may not necessarily be United States because our cost of labor is still so high. Um, but, you know, there are some benefits and there are some Canadian benefits, particularly in terms of health care, which is why a lot of automos automobiles are now made in Canada versus the United States. Same as Mexico. Mexico has some of its own political problems in terms of there's some real estate issues, there's title, land ownership issues in Mexico uh, that need to be resolved before there is a, a huge growth of manufacturing in Mexico. But again, for various products, again, this gets into the size, weight, value, um, driven by the cost of fuel, and as Jim said, you know, other factors, mm -hmm. we definitely see a trend if, if things stay at the rate that they're going of repatriation back to North America for uh, some manufacturing. Chris, would you say that the fuel cost has a, an effect on the smaller spaces, you know, like in Ohio, smaller industrial spaces, or since you're saying kind of coming back? The fuel, y yes, the, the cost of fuel slash just oil, the cost of oil affects every aspect of what we do. And we've been focusing on transportation costs and, and things of that nature. But you know, ultimately, it's going to affect rents in buildings. Okay, the cost today to build a warehouse um, is pushing seven to ten percent more than it cost for me to build the same warehouse two years ago. Okay, um, it's not only the cost of the rubber roof and the asphalt for the paving, which I mean, you clearly see the the connection there, but just the um, the precast panels because they have to be trucked in. Uh, the cost of the steel. You know, just every component of construction has gone up, okay? So uh, ultimately, as that works its way through the system, that inherently means that rents are ultimately going to have to increase in order to support the cost of that construction. Um, as we burn through, you know, there's, there's a lot of dynamic there because you've got second generation space versus new space. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's some moderating effects that happen there. But... Uh, everything that we do is going to be affected by the cost of oil. Um, and so it's, it's going to affect little spaces, big spaces. Um, it's, it's, again, it, 
decision-making processes by tenants as to how much space do I lease, where do I go, where do I put it. Um, you know, Eric and, and the folks at, at the BN have done exhaustive studies and DRE costs, okay? You know, because if, if I have a building, and I've got, I've got good competitors out there in the marketplace that do a great job, they build good buildings too, you know? But, you know, we're constantly in a battle of who's one mile closer to the intermodal than the other guy, because depending upon how much volume that that customer has, that one mile makes a big difference in their dray costs to and from the intermodal. So, and we're constantly battling with our competitors to try to be one step ahead and one mile closer, and, you know, and, um, you know, Centerpoint is, you know, you know, was probably our biggest competitor here in Chicago. You know, we keep trying to one up each other <laughs> in terms of who's who's closer to who's got, uh, you know, property. And you know, right now, the the focus of the Chicago distribution is really down in, you know, the Joliet uh, Elwood area where we've got, uh, you know, the BNSF's yard. Yeah. In fact, if I could, sure. if I could add something to that, there's a study that we did for a customer, um, <coughs> you know, without saying who it was or where they were. Um, we basically took a look at a facility that they had and a facility that would be 14 miles away. And the facility that they have is maybe two miles from an intermodal facility that we have. The dray cost for them, uh, the cost per container for the near facility was about $90 a container. To go to the facility 14 miles away is about 150 The uh, fuel surcharge uh, using a 40% factor on, on the fuel on the uh, rate that they're being charged was $36 for the near facility and 60 for the far one. So you had a total cost per container of 126 versus 210. In addition to that, because of the distance, you could get between six and eight turns per day on a driver for the near facility versus three to four for the far facility. So you can see very quickly, you can, you can burn up your costs very, very fast by having, by just being a very short distance away, 14 miles from a competitor's facility, which if I, if I can, brings up a, a point that uh, is probably, at least in our mind, from the, from the railroad perspective, as critical as anything is, is and, and the monster railroad uh, headline sort of brings it, <laughs> brings it to mind. Um, railroad yards are now like airports. You know, everybody wants them, but not, in the neighborhood, not where you live. Uh, but the fact is, in order to be able to take advantage of the railroad's efficiency, you have to have more rail yards. And they just take up a lot of room. You know, 1,000 acres is, is sort of where you start. And they're long, and they're, they're oval-shaped, and they're like the photo that you had of Alliance. They're, they're kind of an inconvenient sizes. Um, but you have to have, and if you want to have an industrial park around there, a thousand, two thousand acres, all of a sudden you're, you're talking about a lot of real estate. But in order to make sure that we can take advantage of that, of the rail system in the future, because it's going to be very hard to build new rail lines, um, except along the paths where they currently go, we need to reserve big chunks of land today to make sure that we have it three years from now or five years from now or ten years from now. Otherwise, it's going to be covered over with houses and shopping centers and golf courses and things like that. Yes, sir. Very, very good question. Um, minimum standards that we have right now are 115 pound rail. 
in many cases for the, for the transcontinental lines, we want 140 pound rail. It's not unusual for someone to say, I have an industrial building with rail service to us, could you take a look at it and could we start shipping product on it? And you go out and you take a look and it's 90 pound rail. You try to put a, a rail car on there at anything more than a mile an hour and yeah, you, <laughs> you'll drop it on the ground. So uh, a lot of the rail infrastructure has not been updated. Uh, in fact, in many cases, it's sort of analogous to having Midway Airport at 25 years ago and today's traffic on that Midway. It, it, it hasn't been maintained. Um, we spend, I think our CapEx budget this year is somewhere around $2.1, $2.2 billion, and roughly half of that is just upgrading and maintaining the system. And that's similar for all the other uh, class ones. They all spend, you know, similar amounts of money. But the short answer is um, no. <laughs> I, just to go back to the issue of fuel, I mean, Eric kind of glossed over it. I don't know if you caught what he was saying about the local dray. That was a 40% fuel surcharge for the local trucking. Yes. What that says is that for every $100 of the line haul rate, you're going to pay an additional $40 for fuel. And that sort of tells you where the trucking industry is headed, in, at least in the short term. Mm -hmm. not been able to carry, carry the cost. And kind of bringing the focus a little more locally, um, and you know, feel free to any of the previous you know, to answer. We're, we're, you know, obviously, what kind of, um, I would say, patterns uh, with traffic uh, locally? Uh, I think Eric uh, alluded to earlier on how uh, the local food markets are bringing in uh, some foods and the cost using rail you know, from, uh, was it a bakery or uh, some things like that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So on the local market here, locally, uh, you know, coming into traffic, traffic was pretty bad today. We still have out there uh, a lot of people on the road. What are you seeing uh, your customers saying about uh, congestion? Uh, you know, what, what are they planning for the future? Uh, what kind of precautions or, you know, I guess hedging off uh, with different things, either on the rail side or uh, Chris also in the industrial? Mm -hmm. I think what's happening is that our, our capacity utilization of our existing rail infrastructure is going to a much higher level than it's, it's ever been. Um, I'm a relative newcomer to the rail industry. I've been here three years. Um, many people that I work with have been in there 30, 40 years. It's not unusual in the, in the industry. But uh, they have, and almost everyone I've talked to has never seen a situation like this in their careers. It's completely unique. They experienced the downsizing of the industry, but in the last few years they've seen um, a, a dramatic, a dramatic change. Um, what's, wh what that causes is actually, I think, a huge opportunity for the real estate industry. There is a, there's a huge, there's gonna be a huge demand for facilities, um, not only buildings, but also rail itself to get to those buildings, that capital has to be provided by someone. And typically your customers, from what I've seen, are not interested in spending their own capital on it, or at least they want it today or three months from now and for a project that might take 12 to 18 months to build. Um, 
So I, I think the need is to be in a position, there, there's a great need to be in a position to be able to provide that solution for customers. Typically, if someone comes to us and says, we want to be able to uh, install a switch onto a main line and build an industry lead track of 1,000 feet, um, we'll make the customer pay for that. And that's a cost of $150,000 for the switch. That's, that's the low end, plus about $150 to $160 per foot for the track, the ties, the other track materials, not including the roadbed. So it's, it's, it's a very, very costly capital item. On the, on the trucking side, I think it's time for a major paradigm shift. Um, I think it's pretty obvious that our, our highway system, at least here in the Chicago region, is if not gridlocked on the verge of gridlock from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, every day of the week. Um, what's interesting, and I don't know how many of you are out there driving around at 3 o'clock in the morning, but I can tell you that at 3 o'clock in the morning, there's a lot more capacity out there than there is at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I think we have to seriously start thinking about going to 24-7 in terms of operating warehouses and distribution centers and even store deliveries. Um, California, the Port of Los Angeles, had an interesting situation, a similar situation, where they were operating at capacity um, basically during daylight hours. And they went to a program called Peer Pass, which essentially gives truckers and steamship lines an incentive to pick up those containers at 3 o'clock in the morning instead of 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, the program in the first year increased the productivity or the utilization of the Port of Los Angeles by 35% without spending a single dime in additional infrastructure. So I think we better have some serious discussions about 24-7 and for those of you who are builders and developers, you better start thinking about what your facility looks like at 3 o'clock in the morning and what kind of noise it makes at 3 o'clock in the morning as well as 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The, the other flip side to um, fuel and what Eric was alluding to is the use of rail. It's, it's changing kind of deja vu all over again, to quote Yogi. Um, the way industrial parks are being designed, I'm, I'm an old... Trammell Crow guy here in Chicago used to build warehouse buildings in Bensonville and you know we had rail served buildings back then we built rail served <laughs> buildings back in the 70s and try um, to find one today <laughs> yeah and it went away I mean the 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 the, the predominant use of, of industrial buildings kind of got away from rail served buildings in the 80s and 90s it was all about trucking and truck trailer parking and and now it's pendulum swing back the other way again because of these costs. And now what we're looking at is bigger industrial parks, but with access to the rail. And some buildings actually rail serve themselves, but also um, what we call uh, just uh, transload areas within an industrial park where the rail comes into the industrial park and there may be three or four sidings that you can bring rail cars and the tenants in the industrial park have access to the rail. And what that does, there's a, there's a, a commonality here, uh, an aggregation of assets for the railroad, for the developer, and for the tenants, that they're not paying that specific cost to bring the rail to their building, but inside the park, uh, they can use uh, non-highway licensed vehicles to pick up and deliver product from the rail that's a block away, and for the benefit of the railroad, uh, they can haul all these customers' 
products to one spot, drop it off, and the train can leave. And what it does, it, it lowers everybody's cost in terms of moving rail to an industrial park. But what it does, it changes our dynamic as a developer of trying to find the right piece of land that's got the right area, that has access to the rail, uh, and it makes life a little more challenging. It also changes the mentality of where within the metropolitan area of Chicago do you put these things? I mean, it, it clearly, I think you've all seen, you know, a large growth in the I-80, I-55 markets around, you know, Joliet and Manuka and, you know, Shorewood and, you know, uh, Elwood and all those kinds of places. Again, Chicago is a beneficiary of the fact that because it's in the middle of the country and it was the original home of 146 railroads, um, we've got a lot of rail assets. But Eric will be the first one to tell you that not every rail line is created equal. You know, um, some rail lines are intermodally oriented because of where they connect to. There's other rail lines that are not. They're really for what they call manifest freight, the boxcar stuff, because of where they, where they connect to. So just because there's a rail in your backyard doesn't mean that you're going to get intermodal service because it doesn't always necessarily work that way. You know, I guess the, 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 the final comment is, uh, on this is that um, Jim's comment about roads. Uh, you know, again, I-55A, I-80, that intersection in metropolitan Chicago is ground zero for trucking distribution in the Midwest. I mean, that is, that is the location. Uh, you can reach 22 markets in one day's truck drive from that particular intersection, which is why you see such a large aggregation of warehousing in that area, um, you know, because then you've got proximity to rail, and from the trucking industry, once they get on the road, they can get to where they're going very efficiently. So um, a lot of ourselves, you know, we've got a brand new park in Joliet right at the whole boat. You know, road interchange at, at I-80, 260-acre uh, park. Our competitors, basically, you, you draw a ring around that area and you can find virtually every major developer in Chicago has got you know, property and or product uh, in that part of the world. Just to underscore that a, a little bit too, we usually tell that people that 55 and 80 is the surface transportation equivalent of O'Hare. Basically, that's, it, it is the, the center for surface transportation in the Chicago market, which uh, is actually, here you have a unique situation where you have six of the seven class one railroads in North America converging, which is very, very unusual. There was a question back there from a gentleman who's trying to be getting an answer for. He, he was asking is that in an in example of industrial park that has a um, transload area, how does that actually get charged uh, to a tenant? Um, in essence, the, uh, as a landlord, we don't want to get in the middle of that. You know, that's a relationship between the tenant and the railroad themselves. Uh, typically, that would be uh, part of the infrastructure costs of the park. Correct. Uh, it's, it'd be in essence common area for the park. 
Uh, it would be built into the infrastructure of the park. So there is actually no <coughs> charge per se for that. It's just part of the, you know, just like the streets. It's just part of the park. Yeah, that's, that's, she can answer that better than I can. <laughs> a, a good, a, yeah, a good example. Um, down in uh, Woodridge, Bolingbrook, uh, the, the International Center uh, is, a, is a good example of a rail served industrial park. It's, a, it's been there for, I don't know, 25, 30 years or so. Uh, in fact, it used to be property owned by the old Santa Fe and then now it's owned by Prologis. But, um, there you have a number of rail serve buildings along a single uh, industry lead. We call it the Argonne lead because the, the track actually goes through the Argonne National Laboratory on the way to get to the park. And what happens is that a, products are delivered from all over the country. Gallo is, is one of the tenants in that area, for example. But products are delivered from all over the country and then they'll be brought to a centralized yard, like the Joliet yard, and then a local train will be made up in that yard. And that local train's responsibility is to deliver traffic to the Argonne lead, to all the different customers. And so they'll make up a schedule, and usually, typically, we deliver product to uh, facilities like that in the evenings. Uh, it's easier because you have a lot of uh, accurate crossings in that area, and there's, fewer, there's less traffic to, to uh, work with. Um, and so that, that's basically how it happens. There's a, it's, a scheduling, it's a scheduling exercise. Uh, but in terms of, of who gets who gets there first, we, we try to make sure that we can use our crews uh, to the greatest extent possible. Uh, and so we, we, we try to put as much traffic as we possibly can in there. But I think we serve the Argonne lead uh, daily, five days a week. Possibly, I think it's, not, I, actually the Argonne, I think we do six days a week. There's another question over there, I believe. Yes, ma'am. What, what percentage is our fuel cost? Yeah. How much is hedged? Oh, how much is hedged? Yeah. I wish I did. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not in that part of the company. But um, uh, actually, I do have some data in front of me here. Let me pull it up real fast. Why don't I take the hedge first, and then I make a couple of comments on fueling. Um, in the second quarter of 2007, our fuel costs were about $780 million for the railroad. Uh, and that was at a fuel cost of about 210 a gallon average. Um, we have a number of hedges still, but it's a difficult market to hedge in since it could, it could, uh, it could go either direction very quickly. Um, in the second quarter of this year, our fuel costs were about 1.3 billion, and our average fuel cost was about three. Uh, after the hedge was about 351 a gallon. Before the hedge was about 358. So we're able to get some benefit out of it, but it's a. I think our look on the marketplace is that this is a peak period right now. This is a peak pricing period, or at least the second quarter was. So we're hoping that the market's going to go down a little bit, be back backward dated, so we can take advantage of some lower prices. In terms of alternate fuel, we're looking at, I think, just about everything we possibly can short of going <laughs> back to coal. We have, um, 
No, we won't do that. We won't do that. But um, we're looking at biodiesel. Uh, we're looking at uh, hydrogen. We have a fuel cell initiative that's been developed with a company in Topeka, uh, where by 2012 we think we'll have a yard engine. It won't go out of the roads, but it'll be fueled by hydrogen. And, and basically, you know, our, our engines are big electric power plants. It doesn't really matter what fuel you put into it as long as it's, it's clean and efficient. Uh, so we'll burn whatever we can. What are you saying about electrification? Uh, electrification, um, that brings in some other issues to it as well, too, <laughs> which, which Jim could probably speak to better than I could. Uh, more infrastructure issues. But. Well, there, there is a certain amount of, of deja vu to all this. And I, you know, for those of you who would be uh, concerned about the future, um, you know, I think about half of us in this room are old enough to remember that we went through all of this 1979 to about 1982 before the price of fuel collapsed and, and we got 20 years of uh, free lunches. Um, there's a lot of technology out there that was, that a lot of research that was done 20 years ago that's still on the shelf and, and can be taken out and dusted off and implemented fairly easily, quickly. Um, one of the things that the railroad industry looked at back then was electrifying uh, certain high density main lines. And that's a study that, that's an idea who's, who's starting to come back a little bit. Um, there is some issues there when you talk about coal. Um, you know, where would you get the electric, uh, the juice from, if you will, to power the electric locomotives? But uh, that's a very expensive um, system to install in terms of the actual infrastructure as well as buying all the new locomotives. But again, if, if the price of fuel keeps going the way it's going, and if we're looking at um, highway diesel today at truck stops is around 450, 475 a gallon. If we're looking at $10 a gallon highway diesel, all of a sudden a lot of things become attractive. Well, I, I think I, historically no one's really had an incentive to do it. Um, the cost of congestion has been relatively cheap compared to the cost of everything else. You know, we've been sitting here for 20 years essentially with free fuel. I mean, fuel has been, when we, if you adjust the price of in fuel since 1982 for inflation, we've been paying the same price for the past 20 years. Well, labor's been going up, land's been going up, building's been going up, inventory's been going up. So there's no incentive to really start to look at things like this. Um, I think it's going to take some, some political will, some political leadership to give some incentives to people. Not penalties, but I think you want to incent companies to do this. And my guess is that you'll probably see somebody like Walmart come out with a program in the next couple of years to do it at least on an experimental basis. And if it works for Walmart, you bet you're that everybody else in the world is going to follow. But you know, if, if the building is shut down today, if, if you're only operating two shifts, you've got to add a third shift uh, in your warehouse. So that's you know staffing uh, costs, labor costs, um, plus utilities and some other things. So you know, I think that that as there there really is now a cost of congestion. You know, we talk about the cost of congestion, and it's it's a polite term, and everybody says, oh yeah, the cost of congestion is this and this and this. Until about two years ago, the cost of congestion was nothing. 
because we weren't paying for it. Well, all of a sudden we're paying for it. Well, we actually see a lot of our tenants just voluntarily are doing things off peak hours because, I mean, the marketplace is efficient and companies are gonna figure out for themselves uh, very quickly, you know, how many turns their drivers can do and just the traffic and it, it's, it's not good for them to have their truck just mm -hmm. sitting out there idling in, you know, on the Eisenhower at, you know, 3.30 in the afternoon. So a lot of companies already kind of figured this out. Their trucks leave early in the morning. They wait until after rush hour in the evening to leave. So a lot of this already takes place, but it's not, Jim said, none of it's mandated. People are just figuring that out for themselves, just how to be efficient. And in some of our estimates, we take a look at the availability of drivers for, uh, for trucking, <clears throat> even though, the, as, as Chris mentioned, the trucking companies are the single largest customers of the railroad, which I didn't realize until I came to work for the railroad either, but it's basically, they've, they're better at short haul, we're better at long haul, we finally decided to, to kiss and make up. But in, by 2014, we believe that there's gonna be about a 100,000 driver shortage in the United States opposed to the uh, projection of demand. We think there's going to be a need for about 1.65 million truck drivers, and there's going to be about 1.5 to 1.55 million drivers. So there's a huge issue with labor force availability that, that causes problems, and then it, it makes it hard for people to say, why don't you be an over-the-road driver, long-haul driver, work off hours, that sort of thing. People have other al alternatives. It, it ultimately winds up being a quality of life issue. The, the, the hardest driver for the truck companies to keep is the long haul over the road truck driver because it's a quality of life issue. Guys want to be at home. Um, we worked with one company on a, uh, their national DC out in Eastern Ohio and this building was in, uh, right on the Pennsylvania Ohio border and it's right interstates I think 1771 and I'm like, why here? There's like nothing here. And they said, well, our manufacturing is um, in Northern Ohio and we're shipping stuff out of the port out of Baltimore. He says, if you look at the map, they, what they do is they swap trucks, you know, in uh, like in middle of Pennsylvania somewhere. And so the one truck driver would drive to a truck stop and he'd switch trucks with the other guy that drove it from the port and they'd turn around and go home. He says, that way our truck drivers can go home every night. And that's why the warehouse is where it was. And it's all about a quality of life issue for the truck drivers. Yeah, and, and, and being home at night is more important than money. Really quick question right there. Before we get into <laughs> some other questions, just time check, we're at about 9.20. We have about 10 minutes left. One last question after that is just going to be uh, open questions uh, from the floor. Uh, and as Danny alluded to, this is a two-part series. The second part is going to come uh, post-election. And uh, not to get too, uh, too political here, just really quick, is there any um, presidential position that the company should be aware of uh, that might have an effect on fuel costs other than in, uh, so other supply chains and decision, you know, for decision making and so forth. I know Jim hmm. said something about, you know, uh, a political position, but you know, at real high level or whatever you feel comfortable with, if you could just touch on that really quick. Uh, I'm not so much, I'm not sure that, that either one of our presidential candidates understand how to pronounce or spell infrastructure, much less how to pronounce it, which is kind of scary. Um, I would put in a, a sales pitch for um, two pieces of legislation that are in Congress right now that would support the rail industry. They're both tax, investment tax credit programs. 
One is uh, an extension of the short line railroad investment tax credit program that's been in existence for about five years. Um, that piece of legislation is unfortunately tied up in a much larger partisan battle over the future of tax credit legislation in general. Unfortunately, it's an example of our government at its worst. This is a program that has worked very well that people support all over the country and in both political parties, but it's caught up in some partisan bickering. There's another program, uh, the Class 1s have a program, an investment tax credit of 25% that would support any new investment that would expand capacity. This, this tax credit would apply to not only railroads, but also warehouse companies, anybody that extend, extends a siding or buys rail equipment. Um, this is another piece of legislation that's sort of going nowhere fast. I think it, if, it, if it does not pass in this session, it'll be back next time because it's clearly an idea whose time has come. We do not have a viable national policy right now to finance the type of rail infrastructure expansion that we need. The railroads cannot do it by themselves. Their business model does not sustain that level of investment. And if we don't come up with a very creative national public-private partnership, you think gridlock's bad today. We ain't seen nothing yet. Just so, if I can just make a, a comment on that. One of, the, one of the capacity issues that we're going to have to face from the rail system as well <clears throat> has to do with the increased demand of commuter rail. I don't know how many of you ride Metro, uh, but you've probably seen a lot more people on the trains lately. Um, and the capacity that's used, if, if you think of it almost like a sewer pipe, maybe a water pipe is a better, <laughs> better Think of it as a water pipe. Yeah. Um, better. It all depends who's right. If you've got an eight-inch water pipe and you've got just so much capacity, you know, where the fire marshal comes by and, and does your evaluation before giving you your occupancy permit, you have so much capacity in that, in that water pipe for your sprinkler system. If you decide to add another building onto that, you know, you're going to be taking some of that capacity away, and after a while, you're not going to have any capacity left. Commuter rail is a wonderful thing. I ride the rail myself, too, whenever I can, uh, but it takes capacity off the system. And so if we want to have more commuter rail, and speaking to the investment uh, issue, mm -hmm. there's going to have to be more capacity. People in the suburb where I live are going to scream bloody murder. They'll say there's already too many trains. But the reality is, if you want to have more rail traffic, you've got to find some place to put it and you have to find some way to, to be able to pay for it. And that's, yeah. that's a decision that whoever's in office is going to have to, is going to, have to face. And, and you can take it one step further. It's not just the rail infrastructure. It's just infrastructure, period. It's the rails, it's the bridges, yeah. it's the roads. Um, it's just how is all that going to be funded? And again, it, it doesn't make any difference which you know, political party gets into the White House uh, next, you know, next year. Th that has to, that investment has to be dealt with because ultimately we all are going to pay you know the, as, a, as taxpayers and consumers it'll ultimately be passed on to us in terms of our taxes and or what we pay for the cost of our goods at the store someone's going to have to do that and it, even if the infrastructure goes in you'll pay in delay costs because it'll take longer it just, there's it'll inherently cost more to get goods to the store and onto the shelf for all of us to buy You've been raising your hand. I'm just not getting out of here until I'm straight on Dre. Uh, Dre, Dre is the cost to, uh, the short haul cost to move a product. So 
uh, a container shows up at an intermodal yard, it gets lifted off, it gets put on a chassis, and the movement of that truck to a warehouse is called a dray. That's the, the, the terminology of dray. So, is that an acronym for? Uh, no, I, it's, it's drayage. It's, it's an old trucking term, uh, that is, but it's the, the, short, the short haul movement of a truck. Um, is called dray. Yeah, it actually goes back to horse and, and, and wagon because the, the guy doing it was called a drayman. Um, so it's just one of those things that we've hung on to for a thousand years. <laughs> Any other questions? What lessons did you learn from the Europeans? Because they've been, they have high gas prices for years and they have very efficient rail system. Yeah, well, let's start. Yeah. You might have some comments on that too. <laughs> it, it, it's very interesting. Uh, in other countries, the, uh, the, the rail systems tend to focus more on um, passenger traffic than do, they do on freight. In the United States, we've, just, we've done the opposite. We focus on the freight side. So our passenger system is not very robust except in certain urban areas. But um, uh, for example, there is a company we're dealing with from Portugal that makes windmill blades and they are trying to figure out how to ship their windmill blades by rail, which for us is an easy solution, but for them is a novel concept, because in Portugal, everything has to be trucked. You wouldn't think of putting you know, a large, heavy object on the, on the railroads. Um, similarly, the, I mentioned earlier, the steel company in um, northern Minnesota, they're actually owned by an Indian conglomerate. In India, the government owns the railroads, and so it, it's a very different situation in terms of how do you get infrastructure paid for and how do you, how you reserve capacity on the rail line. But I, but I think in other countries, they focus more on, on passenger traffic than, uh, than on uh, freight. Uh, and certainly a good example of that is Japan with the, the Shinkansen, the bullet train system. Yeah, I think also that, that you know, remember that they're, they're, the rail systems in Europe are government owned. Um, the marginal tax rate over there is probably about three times what the marginal income tax rate is in this country. So, you know, if we all, if we all want to pay 78% of our income in income taxes every year, I'm sure we could have a first class anything we wanted to. Um, freight rail really needs to be, needs about a five or 600 mile line haul to really start to work well. You have very high fixed costs, very high terminal costs a lot of terminal delay built into the system and the more line haul miles you have, the more efficient the system becomes. Europe, you know, 500 miles is pretty much the coast of France to almost to Warsaw, Poland. So you, you, you really don't have um, the type of, of network that, that allows freight rail to be as efficient as it is in this country. Passenger rail, um, again, government subsidy, you can build anything you want. Plus, uh, in Europe, most of the inter-country uh, shipments are done by barge, not by rail. Uh, there's a designed obsolescence in the rail systems in Europe that the gauge is different from country to country. And that was done purposefully so during times of war, mm -hmm. they couldn't steal someone else's railroad and run munitions from one country <laughs> to another. So there is no connectivity. And you know, if you even take a passenger train in Europe, you have to change trains when usually from country to country. You have to get out of one train, get in another, because there's no compatibility there. And again, it's a, it is a distance issue. I mean, you know, shipping from France to Germany is like shipping from Illinois to Indiana. Um, it's not exactly a long haul issue. Yeah. There, there is one um, 
I, I think one very good lesson that we can pick up from other countries in terms of, of, of rail service uh, relative to passenger is that it's probably a very good idea to separate the systems. Uh, in Japan, where they have uh, just an incredibly efficient passenger rail system, they are basically separate systems, and they're electrified. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, I, I think it really makes a lot of sense. In Minneapolis, there is a, um, a light rail system that's being built through the urban area, which will be separate from the, from the, uh, the class one rail lines. Now, there's another commuter line that's being built from downtown Minneapolis up to Big Lake going to the northwest, which eventually will get to St. Cloud. And that is, a, um, is operating on the BNSF system. But I think separate rail systems is probably a way to go, simply because you, you get away from, yeah, it takes, takes more land, more capital investment, but then you can, you can pack that system with commuter traffic and you don't have to be concerned with sharing it with freight traffic. How many are empty? It depends on which direction. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and that's changed a lot over the last uh, two years yeah. uh, in terms of empty which way. Um, in, in terms of, <clears throat> well, for the BNSF, we handle about two and a half million containers a year in Chicago. Um, probably, it, it, what's changed over the last three years is that there used to be a lot of containers going back to the West Coast empty. There's now a number of containers that don't go back to the West Coast because they're being brought to other places uh, further east and manufactured goods are being put in them and shipping them to Europe. Uh, but that's, that's the currency exchange uh, dynamic, related dynamic. Uh, what's happening with the containers that are going back uh, to the West Coast now, uh, I think roughly 60% of the ones that we ship back have something in them. And uh, about half of those are agricultural products. Corn, soybeans, dried desilitous grain, that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of raw materials are being exported back to Asia in, in containers. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that the shipping companies have an interest in shipping back more empty containers, or a certain number of empty containers on their vessels, because it costs them more in bunker fuel to ship a loaded ship back to Asia than it does one that's empty, and they'll actually have to have a certain number of empty containers on that vessel. So there's a couple of things, that, a couple of dynamics that impact that.